Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the Christians, there was this explosion of power and growth that happened. And soon thereafter, it it talks about how 3,000 people were baptized in one day. And so the church has continued to expand for 2,000 years, making more and stronger disciples who make more and stronger disciples. In fact, Faith Bridge is a practical outworking of that. Of course, the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about the multi-campus approach, where we take some of the people and a leader and a staff from, you know, the Klein campus, and we've started our Woodlands campus. And I'm sure there'll be some other FaithBridge campuses that'll come along in the years ahead. The other way that you continue to expand is through church planting. Which one's right, which one's wrong? They're both right, they're both great, they're both fulfilling the Great Commission. What I'm really excited about is that behind the scenes, Faith Bridge has been planting churches, but it's time for everybody to know what we've been doing. That's what makes me really excited about the HCPN group, the Houston Church Planting Network that we began partnering with two years ago. My name is Chad Clarkson. I serve as the executive director of the Houston Church Planning Network, known as HCPN. We wanna connect everybody involved in church planning throughout the city, so we're big in collaboration. So our heart is to be really a network of networks or multiple groups, denominations, churches, uh, coming together to see Houston reached. I get asked pretty frequently, why plant another church in Houston? And it is historically, theologically, and statistically a fact that new churches are the single best way to reach lost people. Uh, Really, as I look at the Great Commission, go and make disciples. You know, it doesn't say go and plant churches, but I think as you make disciples, uh, out of that, new churches are gonna get started. FaithBridge is considered one of our anchor churches for HCPN. We have a handful of them that are really spread throughout the city. And it's really because of these anchor churches uh, that make HCPN uh, really successful and especially our residency program. So uh, without FaithBridge as one of the partners, uh, HCPN I I think wouldn't be where it's at. That means we get to come around these guys and do coaching for them, mentoring, help them think, help them learn, help them see problems that they're gonna have along the way before they ever get there. Each of the pastors in the cohort actually gets sort of extra from the anchor church where they're anchored. And uh, Josh Gosney was anchored at Faith Bridge, has been, is right now, anchored at Faith Bridge. So he's been around even more than the rest of the gang. My name is Josh Gosney. I'm the pastor of Wake Church, um, and we've been working on planting our church now for just a little over a year and a half. So Wake Church, uh, our mission is to wake people up to new life in Christ. We're drawing a circle around this area and saying, this is our area to take. Uh, there's people who need uh, Jesus in that area, and it's a mixture from every ethnicity in the in the Oak Ridge area, and uh, we feel like we're in the right position to make a difference. Faith Ridge has been absolutely huge in the foundation pieces of Wake, uh, and so every week I get to sit underneath the leadership of Faith Bridge, learn, grow from the kids ministry all the way up to worship to. Um, Pastor Ken and his teaching, serving on the Woodlands campus uh, and getting my hands dirty before I'm planting a church has been huge as well. Uh, FaithBridge has uh, answered so many huge prayers for us as a church planner that um, otherwise if if FaithBridge didn't step in, we we truly believe that uh, we wouldn't be where we are today. It's just been a joy to watch him learn, to see his eyes sparkle with excitement, to hear his dreams, to help him refine those and and push towards his launch and the new things that God's going to be doing at Wake Church. And I'm encouraged, excited, prayerful, hopeful as I look towards uh, the partnership that FaithBridge will continue to enjoy with Wake Church in the years ahead. Hey, welcome Josh. 
at all our campuses, we're glad that you're here. I've been excited about today because I wanted you to meet one of our seven church planters that are going out uh, this year, and uh, what a joy to have Josh here. So a few quick questions. First of all, starting a church is hard. How is your wife doing in all of this? <laughs> uh, she is an absolute trooper. Uh, we said this while we were dating. She stands on my left side, and men who have a, a solid lady on your side, you know that that is huge, and uh, she's absolutely beautiful, um, and she serves week in and week out, and we couldn't do what we do without her. Uh, so she's oh, also, we're expecting our first child. There you go. How about, praise the Lord. Planting a church, having a baby, wrapping it all up in the same year. So you're kind of planting two babies. Yes, you have a absolutely. new church and a new baby. All right. <laughs> so there's nothing that puts one out on the front lines like starting a church. You don't know where your anything's coming from the next day, and you're living on the edge, and you see God work. How have you been seeing God work? Oh, wow. So when we stepped out, we, the only context to church planting we had was save up as much money as you can and step out on faith and God will provide the rest. And uh, where that is absolutely true, uh, it made a difficult journey. And so going into the summertime of 2015, uh, we begin to see our finances drop. All of the things started hitting us really hard. Um, and so over a course of about 40 days, we were just asking God, please don't allow us to be alone in this journey. God, I'm young and I need wisdom in this journey. And secondly, we need financial provision. Uh, and with one, one answered, uh, one yes from God, he changed it all. And that was with HCPN and the partnership with FaithBridge that provided all of those things. And so since then, God's faithful hand has continued to provide every single step of the way. So we're excited for the future as it continues to approach. Amen. And it's good traction that you're getting. So I just have a sneaking suspicion we have here a few pioneers. You're restless. You kind of have that feeling, I got to get out of here. I got to go be doing the new thing. If they wanted to con contact you, connect with you, say, how could I come help you, partner with you, you know, be on the team, how would they do that? Uh, well, we'll take anybody that's breathing. So <laughs> if you got a pulse, that's good. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but the easiest way that you can connect with us is simply go to wakechurch.tv is our, our website. Uh, if you'd like to email us, you can email us at info at, uh, info at wakechurch.tv. Or you can just follow our journey on social media, all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and then also you can send us your email and we can keep you up to date uh, with what God's doing every single step of the way of the journey. So. Right. And uh, Josh put a few of these out at the kiosk. You can pick up those uh, if you're interested. And I hope you will be. Let's, uh, let's continue to support him. And as the Lord taps your shoulder, you, you respond and go start a church. Nothing more exciting. Let's pray for this guy. Would you hold your hands out in whatever room you're in and just hold your hand out as a gesture of love and support and solidarity. And let's pray for him. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> for Josh and for Cody and for a little baby coming and for Wake Church that is coming into existence for the exciting things that you're doing, for the lives that are going to be changed, the souls that are going to be saved, the disciples that are going to be made there, the answers to prayer that are going to be experienced, the darkness that is going to be pushed back in that community. It's exciting, Lord, to be on the front lines of what you're doing. And nothing puts us there like starting a new church. Lord, I just pray that you would give to him extra grace and strength and courage and wisdom. Give him joy in his sagging moments <clears throat> and confidence. Pour out your blessings upon his budding family as well as the church, Lord. Make his steps, uh, just his pathway straight as he trusts in you with all of his heart and leans not on his own understanding. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand behind him, that we can encourage him, that we can uh, play a role in helping to shape and coach and form him and, and launch him now. So we just uh, come together with our hearts today rejoicing and saying thank you, God, and praying your blessings on him when we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Big hand for God, big hand for Josh. Thank Yay, you. thanks. 
All right, so he's one of the seven that we're launching uh, here in the next few months. And so if you ever wondered, do we ever start churches? Do we ever start churches? And I was excited, am excited to just introduce this, this whole Houston Church Planting Network that I'm on the board of and that we're very much a part of to you today. You say, well, why isn't he here right now? Why did he come to the early service? Well, because he's doing church right now at Oak Ridge. And so he sped out of here after the 9 o'clock to get back up there. They were doing their whole setup this morning. Um, and so that's why. Turn in your Bibles, Acts chapter 8. I beg your pardon, Acts chapter 4. Let's cut it in half. Uh, ushers, would you come forward? Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to go. If you need a Bible, you just flag down one of the ushers, and they'll be glad to let you uh, have one of those. While they're doing that, I'll ask you a question. Anybody here heard of Sherwood Anderson? Raise your hand if you've heard of Sherwood Anderson. I'm seeing no hands, which is not a total shocker. He was an author, a writer, who wanted to become a great writer and in the earlier part of the previous century, uh, but it didn't happen. It just didn't turn out the way that he had dreamed. But along the way, a young author came to Anderson and sought out his tutelage. And they spent a lot of time together and they ate a lot of meals together. And shortly thereafter, that young author wrote a book called The Sun Also Rises. And Ernest Hemingway was on his way as a famous author. And then when Sherwood Anderson moved to New Orleans, another young author came and sought out his tutelage, became inseparable from him. And before long, he had written a book called Soldier's Pay, and William Faulkner's career had been launched. And after him came a John Steinbeck, and after him came a Thomas Wolfe, who would say of Anderson, <clears throat> he's the only man in America who ever taught me anything. Now, isn't it interesting? You've heard of some of those authors, but you haven't heard of Sherwood Anderson. And yet, it was Anderson who was standing behind all those guys who did become famous authors, coaching them, leading them, mentoring them, in their journey. The longer I go in life, the more I find myself interested in this question. When I see somebody who's very successful, whether they're an author or uh, an athlete or a musician or a leader or a pastor, whoever, um, I find myself uh, wanting to rewind the tape and ask, well, who coached them? Who was the person behind the person that helped them become Great, because I think you can learn a lot if you can get back to that source and figure out who was the person behind the person. Well, today we're going to look at a person behind several people, those people you've heard of in the New Testament, but this person, I bet half of you, you never heard of him, and the other half of them, you heard of him, but you can't quite remember who he is. That's who we're going to look at here in Acts chapter 4. They called him Joseph. Uh, that I should say that was his name of origin, but they didn't call him Joseph. They called him something else. So let's read and look at that part uh, together. Acts chapter 4 in verse 36. So it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. They gave him this nickname because it fit who he was and what he did. And subsequently, you never see him referred to as Joseph again in the Bible, but always by his nickname, Barnabas, the encourager. That word encourage, by the way, is an important word, you know. It means to breathe courage into someone. That's what encouragers do, right? They breathe courage. They hearten the disheartened. George, uh, Dr. George Adams refers to encouragement as oxygen for the soul. That's a good metaphor. 
oxygen for the soul. That's encouragement. Now, what I want us to do uh, in our time together today is I want us to look at four snapshots that we get of Barnabas here in the book of Acts, okay? And the first of those four snapshots occurs here in the very beginning, the early church. So Jesus has gone to the cross, he's risen, and he's charged the disciples that were behind, left behind. He's saying, now I'm telling you, here's your mission. You go into all the world and make disciples, and I'm going back to heaven. Now imagine the enormity of, of that commission. Just go basically and change the world and take the good news of, of, of Jesus into all the world. And ta-ta, I'm going on back to heaven now. So I'm leaving it with you. So here are these uh, Christians in this fledgling church uh, just getting it started. And you're going to see Barnabas appear for the first time. And you're going to see this first act of encouragement that's manifested through generosity. That's the first way it's manifested. Let's look at it. It's in the same verse that we were just reading, 436 and particularly 37. So Joseph, this son of encouragement, what did he do? It's 37. He sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. So he steps onto the scene in the early church and he gets behind the mission so much so that he sells a field. Scholars say if you could understand the original language, you would realize they were saying he sold his only field. And he brought the money and he said, here to the early church, maybe this will help us get some traction going along. Now you read that and you say, well, all right, that's nice, big deal. Well, unless you've ever started a church, I'm telling you, you wouldn't know what a big deal it is. Because when you're just starting out, you don't have anything. I remember 17 years ago, I suppose, one day I, I, our little fledgling faith bridge was up to, I think, close to maybe 80 or 100 people. <clears throat> and I was driving down Stubner Airline, kind of close to 1960, and my cell phone rang, and I answered it, and it was a guy who was in our little church. And he said, Ken, I, I want to talk to you about something, and, and it's, I think you're going to find very good news, but I want you to pull the car over so that you don't have a wreck when you hear it. And so I pulled over and um, said, so what's up? He says, well, my wife and I, we have come into quite a financial windfall, and we just feel like God's telling us that we are supposed to make a gift of a hundred thousand dollars to the new church well I nearly dropped the phone because you have to understand that a hundred thousand dollars was about the whole year's worth of what we would have gotten in offerings uh, back at that stage and here he was just saying essentially I just give you a whole year's worth right here bam just like that and I was just stupefied and, and, and so excited and I said oh my gosh you're kidding no I'm not he was excited and I was excited and we prayed on the phone and I thanked him profusely and my mind was thinking what in the world would we ever do with that much money and as if to anticipate that he he said now let me tell you what we're going to do with that money he said that's not going to be for the operating budget because people will give to that every week. What I want to do with this, Ken, is I want us to start our land acquisition fund with that money. Because someday we're going to have to buy some property and to build our church on. We can't just stay over at the, at the school forever. And so we're going to ha have a land fund, and, and now you can announce that it actually has something in it. Oh, let me tell you, I went marching in the church the next Sunday. I just could hardly wait to get to that point in the service. I'm just getting through my whole sermon just to get to the point where we got to the offering where I could say, and oh, by the way, we have a land fund now, which, oh, by the way, has $100,000 in it. You know, and people broke into applause and there was excitement. And I'm telling you, that gift that he made just shot volts of courage and confidence into me and into our whole little church and took many of us who were thinking, I really wonder if this thing's going to get off the ground. We're believing the best. It just took us to a whole new level of thinking, yeah, this thing really is going to get off the ground. And not wondering anymore, will it be a, a, a church that works, but 
this is going to be a great church that's going to change lives and save souls and push back the darkness. And this is really going to happen. And it's because he made that gift. Oh, we've had a lot of people who've come in over the years who've made significant gifts, sometimes big like that one, sometimes smaller like 50 or or $100, but with a meaningful story behind it. And I'm telling you, every single time, it shoots courage into me and into our whole congregation, which is why, incidentally, some of you wonder, well, where does some of our, our missions, faith, promise, money go? Well, just to bring full circle what we're talking about today, we give $100,000 to HCPN every year to help launch churches because we want to do the same sort of thing. This is what Barnabas did. He, he came into that fledgling church in Jerusalem. He said, look, I'm gonna go, I just sold my property, and here's the money. And you're not sad about that? No, I'm excited about that because I know that God's in the midst of what we're doing. He's called us to do a great thing. That's the first time we see Barnabas. The second time we see Barnabas, you have to turn over to Acts chapter 9 if you're following along. <clears throat> and at this point in Acts chapter 9, we see Barnabas manifest his encouragement in a little bit of a different way. He's going to reach out to a man who was all alone. Now, if you've read through the book of Acts, you know that the uh, central most figure, Paul, the apostle Paul, the great missionary leader Paul, he didn't start out as Saint Paul. He didn't start out as a saint. He didn't even start out as Paul. He was actually known as Saul, who was a Jew of Jews, he described himself. And he felt very threatened by Christianity, and he wanted to get it snuffed out. And so he was going around, and he was even killing off Christians, like we see him doing with Stephen. Because he figured, this is a cult, we've got to get rid of this, because Judaism, I'm a Jew of Jews. And this is nonsense. And so he was killing the Christians until one day he's taking that famous walk on the road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus himself breaks through in a blinding light, throws from the ground. It's a powerful story. And he figures out, saying, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And he comes to faith, Saul does. And later his name's going to change to Paul. And he's going to become the most powerful missionary in the history of Christianity. But he had a problem. After somebody who's been killing the Christians announces, I'm a Christian, now would you let me come in? How quickly do you think they're just going to throw open the doors and say, well, just come on in? Not so. Look at what happened. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They thought he was only pretending to be a believer. And then Barnabas, Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus. And Barnabas also told them what the Lord had said to Saul and how now he boldly preached in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And then the apostles accepted Saul. And after that, he was constantly with them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. So here's what we have to see. When everybody else was drawing away from Saul in fear, Barnabas reached out in faith. He vetted him. He vouched for him. He said, I'll be his sponsor. And he put his arm around him, and he brought him into the inner circle of the Christians. And he said, this guy's for real. He really is. He's, he's not the same person who was killing the Christians the other day. He really has been transformed by Jesus on the inside. Sometimes you got to have a Barnabas, don't you? If you're going to have a bridge into a, a, a group or a, a circle that you just can't get into otherwise. I was telling Josh and the other planters 
recently when I was meeting with them, how it was when I moved into this community, I didn't know anybody. I'd lived in the woodlands, I'd lived in the Galleria area where I'd grown up, but I didn't know anybody out here except two people. Their names are Shannon and David. And I had talked with them and they would said, we're going to come and we're going to help you start the church. And so the three of us, we would meet up in my third floor apartment and we would kneel down at my uh, sofa with the plaid material on it. And the three of us would pray that God would use us to start a great church. And But after a couple of times, finally David said, now Ken, this is all very meaningful. And we enjoy kneeling down here and praying at your sofa. But don't you think we need to come up with a strategy to like get some other people and to, to sort of like grow a little bit? And so about a week or two later, they threw opened the doors to their home and invited everybody that they knew who would come. And I came screeching up about five minutes late from the Kinko's copies where I had had the little brochures on our church printed hot off the press, hustled in. And after mingling for a few minutes, Shannon and David called everybody to attention, 20, 25 people who had gathered in there. And they said, we are just so glad that you came over. And the reason that we wanted you to come, as we told you on the phone, was we want you to see what we're so excited about. We're part of this new church, and we just really think it's a, an exciting thing, and we thought maybe some of you would be interested in coming and being a part of it. Maybe if you are a Christian and you even are involved at another church, God would call you to come be a missionary with us, and maybe even if you're not a Christian, and that's okay. Maybe you just want to be a part of something new. Would you just jump in, and, and you might learn some things along the way, but we just wanted to get you all in the same room, and now we want to introduce to you our friend and our pastor, Ken Werlein, and I remember just that moment when I just, it just resounded in my head, my friend, my pastor, as I walked to the stairwell in their entrance hall where I could stand and talk to everybody. And it just, it just struck me how they were leveraging their trust chips with all their friends to introduce me into a community that I had no other way to meet people in. I was thinking about it even as I was thinking about Josh and the day and Barnabas. And I was thinking, you know, if it hadn't been for that night, we might not all just be sitting here today. Shannon and David built a bridge for me that I couldn't build for myself. They served as Barnabas when I was here as a new church planter. Now, even as I was telling you that story, I have a feeling that the Lord perhaps brought to mind somebody in your life who served as a Barnabas. Maybe you think, you know, that reminds me of this person who kind of brought me into a circle that I couldn't have gotten into by myself, you know, and, and sponsored me or, or, or welcomed me or, or ushered me in, vouched for me. And I just wonder if maybe God's word to you today would be to, maybe you need to call that person up or send them a note or text and just say, hey, by the way, thank you for what you did. You served as a, a Barnabas who I learned about at church today in my life back then. And I just have a sneaking suspicion that even as we're talking today, the Lord might also be tapping you on the shoulder and saying, yeah, and I want you to do the same thing for this person or that, who otherwise they're not going to have a way into the circle. But you could leverage some trust chips, pave a way for them, put your arm around them, sponsor them, vouch for them, and help them to feel encouraged to come in. Maybe that'll be your action step for the day. So Barnabas, he brought Saul into that circle, and uh, what an important thing that he did because Saul is going to turn into Paul, who's going to turn into arguably the most influential missionary in the history of Christianity because Barnabas brought him in. Now, the next time we see Barnabas is over in Antioch. Turn over to 
Acts chapter 11 as we keep going on in the story. This is interesting. Now, an interesting thing had happened by this point in the Christian uh, church. You remember at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had come and many people had trusted in Christ and they went out in different places and some of those Christians had gone off to Antioch. And in Antioch, they started to spread the gospel, and so now there's Christians converting, people who are converting into Christianity in Antioch. The difference, though, was Antioch, unlike Jerusalem, was not filled with a bunch of Jewish people. It was filled with what they called Gentile people. Gentile people are the non-Jewish people. That's just a fancy word for non-Jewish people. And so now you have Gentiles who are becoming Christians in Antioch, And here in Jerusalem, anybody who'd ever become a Christian had been a Jew before. So the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are like, wait a second, wait a second. Can this really happen? You mean they're they're converting to to Christianity and they're Gentiles? Gentiles are known to be immoral, to be idolaters. Goodness gracious, you mean they're becoming Christians? Can that really be happening? It just was hard for them to compute. And so they said, we got to send somebody here from the hub in uh, Jerusalem. we got to send somebody to check out what's going on there in Antioch. Is it for real? Who'd they send? They send Barnabas. That's who they send. Let's look at what happens. Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 22. When the church of Jerusalem had heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the grace of God... He was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Now, what you have to realize is that when he came into Antioch, he would have seen different-looking sorts of people than what he was accustomed to, who were speaking a different language than he was accustomed to. And so it could have been real easy for him to say, whoa, this is kind of weird, and to cut and run and go back to Jerusalem and say, mayday, mayday, it's just chaos going on in Antioch. I don't know what in the world's going on. But that's not what happened. He hung around and he studied what was going on and he discerned, no, these people really are. They're being touched by Jesus. No, they didn't come from our background, our Jewish background, but, the, the, but it's real nonetheless. They're being transformed no different than we are being transformed by the risen Christ who's coming to their hearts. It's a legitimate, real thing that's going on. So the Bible says that he didn't pour water on the fire, but rather he poured fuel on the fire, and he encouraged those believers filled with joy. There he is encouraging now in this whole new thing that looked a little different and that other people might have been scared of. But he encouraged them. Same time he was encouraging, though, he was self-aware enough to realize, now, I'm not probably the best person to connect with these Gentiles here in Antioch. That's really not my background. Who could I get? Saul of Tarsus. He'd be the guy. So he goes down to Tarsus, and he gets his convert Saul, soon to become Paul, and he takes them off to Antioch. Now you say, now why would he have gotten, gone and gotten Saul? I'll tell you why. It's interesting. Saul was a Jewish, Jew, Jew of all Jews, he described himself before he came to Christ. But he grew up in Tarsus, which was a Gentile city. Like Antioch was a Gentile city, not like Jerusalem. And subsequently, Saul knew how to live in two worlds. So he'd grown up very, very Jewish, 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 with Gentiles running all around him. That was the world that he lived in, in Tarsus. So he knew how to navigate this world of of sort of Gentiles. He could speak Greek as well as Hebrew. He'd been one of the smartest guys there was, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. And Barnabas says to himself, I got to go get Saul. He'll be the guy. He Gosh, what good he could do. He could be a leader up here at the church of Antioch. He goes and gets Saul, brings him to Antioch, and that's exactly what happens. Kapow. Things start to happen in a very big, powerful way. Now, I want you to notice something. This is really key here. So if you're following along, I want you to look at Acts chapter 11:25. Okay? Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year... 
Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Now, what you have to understand in Bible study is that the scriptural authors placed a very high priority on ordering. You say ordering. Ordering like when there's a list of names, the order mattered. The most important, the VIP came at the front of the list and then you worked down in descending order from there to the least important, right? And so what happened, what do you see in this verse? You see Barnabas and Saul meeting with the Christians for a year. The mentor, the mentee. The coach, the player. The teacher, the student, right? Very clearly. But now watch what's going to happen. There's going to be something significant that happens. By the time you get down to verse 1342, read what it says. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So you turn over just two chapters, 1342, you see this. And from here on, for the most part, any time the two are mentioned, now Paul as at the front of the list. What's Luke telling us? Luke who wrote Acts. What is he telling us in this? Oh, he's telling us something very significant. He's telling us that Barnabas was a humble man. He's telling us that Barnabas had the humility to move to the back, to step to the rear, to become the second chair violinist and say, hey, you know what? <laughs> you need to be the first chair at this point, Paul. You're really good in this role, in this city. You were made for this. And you know, great encouragers, um, great leaders, great friends, great parents, they're able to do that. They're able to push the protege up to the front, to nudge them forward, to give them the spotlight, to say, you try it, you do that. I'll coach you, but I'll step to the rear. It's the insecure ones that say, no, I've always been in front. I'm going to let you get in front. But that wasn't Barnabas. He was like, no, Paul. And don't you know that Barnabas, he didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He knew what was going to happen. That's the whole reason he went and got him in the first place. He knew as brilliant as Paul is, it'll only be a matter of time before they're saying, Paul and who was that other guy? Oh, yeah, Barnabas, that's right, as an afterthought. Was he threatened by He wasn't threatened at all. Why? Because he was committed to the mission of making more and stronger disciples, and he knew this is the way it's going to happen best and fastest. This is God's will. I've got to help him become all that God's created him to be. I was thinking in my own life of a Barnabas, I guess you could say, in my own journey. I've told you here and there about him. His name is Dr. Rob, Ed Rob. He's the pastor of the Woodlands uh, Methodist Church. He was actually the founding pastor, and he's still there. I think that big church now has had him as pastor for nearly 40 years. I remember when we met, I was 23 or maybe 24. I was at Asbury Seminary up in Kentucky, and I was walking into a class one day, and I saw the people walking into the class, saw this man stationed up there facing everybody coming in, and he was conversing with several people, and I found out what he was doing. He was asking, do you know who Ken Werlein is? Well, several people in front of me said, yeah, he's him. And so when I got there, he said, Ken Werlein. I said, I am. And he said, I'm Ed Robb. It is good to meet you. I said, well, it's good to meet you. He said, I'm pastor of the Woodlands Methodist Church. Now, how long is it till you graduate? A year? Two years? I said, yes, sir, that's right. He said, well, here's the deal. When you graduate, I want you to come to the Woodlands, and I want you to cut your teeth in ministry on my staff. You'll love it. It's a great place. The community is just wonderful. They'll love you a lot. They'll encourage you a lot. And you're going to have a lot of fun. And so that's what I wanted just to meet you and make this introduction so that you could do that. I was like, well, thank you. And <clears throat> my mind was thinking about it throughout the rest of the class. And, well, if you've been around for any length of time, you know that is exactly what happened a year or two later. I went and I cut my teeth there for five years and it was Dr. Rob who really continued to nudge me to the front. As I look back, I look back gratefully at all the coaching that he gave me, all the spotlights he put me in, all the accolades he allowed me to have that boosted my confidence, 
all the forgiveness and grace that he showed me when I was sort of immature and did some dumb things. And, and, and how he just, he, he was a Barnabas in my life. And I would go so far as to say that today, a lot of who I am is because of who he back then was telling me I could be and would be and, and, and should be. And I'll always be grateful to him for that. Now, what you might definitely not know is <laughs> Dr. Rob wasn't just doing that for me. He did it for a lot of people. As a matter of fact, a year or two after I launched out to come start Faith Bridge, another guy came launching off our staff. He'd been one of our, our youth pastors up there, our junior high pastor while I was there. His name's Matt Carter. And he would come launching out of the same church to go start a great church in Austin called the Austin Stone Community Church. And one of our musicians at the same time, Matt and I aren't the only ones who can talk about Dr. Rob. One of our musicians who was on the staff, he came launching out, and his name is Chris Tomlin. And what church in America and around the world doesn't sing a Chris Tomlin song about every Sunday? And so what I'm trying to illustrate is that there's a lot of us who are out about doing ministry in other parts of the world today who could look back and talk about a Barnabas in our life who was Dr. Rob. So let me ask you, who are you bringing along? Who brought you along and who are you bringing along? And sort of nudging to the front and saying, you could do this and I'll coach you and I'll help you and we'll work on it together because I think God wants you to do this. Who are you serving as a Barnabas to in your own life? Well, there's one more scene that we get in Acts. And so let's turn over and look at this final snapshot. <clears throat> and this is over in Acts chapter 15. And in this snapshot, we're going to see Barnabas doing it again. He's going after the underdog again. He's putting his arm around him again. Here's the context. The, this time the protege's name was John Mark. Now, John Mark was a uh, cousin of Barnabas, and mostly we know of him as Mark, not John Mark, but, the, but pretty much from here on as Mark. Well, Mark had gone with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary tour as a protege, but he kind of got cold feet and chickened out and, and heard mommy calling him home and, and sort of packed it in and deserted Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. So, sometime later, Paul and Barnabas are making travel plans for their uh, next missionary journey. And Barnabas says to Paul, well, let's take John Mark again. And Paul says, no. Let's look at it. Acts 15, verse 38. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and not continued with them in the work. And they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left. They went on and got to Syria and Cilicia. Now, we don't know exactly how that conversation would have gone with Paul and Barnabas when they were arguing about taking Mark or not. But I have to imagine it sounded a little bit like Barnabas at some point saying, now Paul, Mark's a different person than he was a year or two ago. He's grown. He's, he's not the same guy who cut and run on us. Let's give him another chance. Let's, let's try him out. Let's, let's see if his spiritual muscles haven't grown a little bit. And by the way, um, Paul, where would you be today if I hadn't come along and given you access into the inner circle of the Christian church when they didn't trust you? And where would you be, Paul, if I hadn't come back and got you and said you need to come up here to Antioch because I think God's going to use you? Well, we don't know, but we do know that Paul was apparently stubborn about this one and said, no, I'm not going to do it. Burn me once, it's your fault. Burn me twice, it's my fault. Not going to do it. The good news is, later in life, Paul's going to come full circle and he's going to speak highly of Mark. So there is a softening that happens in his life later. 
And roundaboutly, even though you hate to see this, this separation between the friends, uh, roundaboutly in God's great plan, I suppose it's good in that you had not one missionary team, but now you had two missionary teams. So technically you're covering twice as much ground. So we can see even God's providential hand uh, in that. But of most salience for us this morning, what I want you to see is that Barnabas, rather than cowering and saying, okay, Paul, um, I, if, if you say so, we'll just, we'll not, he said, no. I got to go for the underdog again. I'm going to coach him up because I think God's hand is on Mark. Well, you should know, Mark actually did quite well on that missionary tour. And as a matter of fact, in time, he's going to write one of the four gospels in our New Testament. What are the gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, here's what's interesting. Mark, which is the second gospel in the way our Bible's laid out, scholars uh, believe was actually the first gospel to be written. So Mark was the first one to kind of pin the story of Jesus. And scholars also point out that, that probably the other three gospel writers, uh, you know, took some thought, some coaching, uh, maybe some, some nuancing, even from Mark's gospel as they laid out their story of Jesus. So follow this. So in Mark, you have arguably the most influential gospel writer. In Paul, who would give us 13 of the New Testament letters, you, you have in these two men at least half, maybe most, of our New Testament. And who was standing behind both of them? Barnabas. And most of you didn't even know who he was when you came in here today. But it was Barnabas who was standing back in the shadows, nudging them forward, coaching them, saying, you know, I think God has his hand upon you and he wants to use you in a big way. Let's work with this. Let me help you to become all that God has wants you to be. But you know, really, when you think about it, Barnabas wasn't doing anything that he hadn't already seen Jesus do. Because if there was ever anybody who went for the underdog, it was Jesus, right? Because God, looking down upon all of us, dogs it lost in our sinfulness the bible says like sheep all of us had gone astray all of us had fallen short of his glory and we all deserve to be separated in hell and he could have just sealed it up and just said yeah you all were just a, a project that went bad and you just go to hell but he didn't do that instead he said i i'm gonna have mercy and I'm going to show grace. And he sent his only son, Jesus, who came into this world, the greater Barnabas, you could say, who became one of us human beings, trafficked with humanity for three years, felt the feelings that we felt, cried the tears that we cry, felt the temptations that we experience. And yet he lived the life of perfection that none of us could live so that he could be qualified to die the death of persecution and suffering that all of us deserved to die to pay for our own sins. But he said, instead of you having to pay for your sins, I'll go to the cross and I'll pay for your sins for you. I'll be your substitute. So that then on the third day when he arose from the grave... He could resoundingly, triumphantly signal to the whole world, if you'll link yourself to me by faith, you too will rise to everlasting life. And so really, <laughs> Barnabas was just continuing what he'd seen Jesus do because nobody built a bridge like Jesus and that's what Barnabas continued to do, was to perpetuate that gospel message by being a bridge of faith to the people that he would meet and usher them in and mentor them up and launch them out. So, as we come to a close, my question for you today is this. Who has been a Barnabas in your life 
Again, maybe the, the step that you need to take today is to send them a note or a text or a phone call. Even this evening, just say, hey, I don't know if I ever really thanked you adequately, but you were a Barnabas in my life, and I'll always be grateful. At the same time, I bet he's calling you to be a Barnabas to somebody as well. Even as I've talked, perhaps he's brought a person to mind, a person who's outside the circle, maybe the outside the circle of, of, of church and of Jesus, and you say, you know, I need to invite him to come with me or her to come to our grow group or to jump on our serve team and to, to have some friends and to connect in. Or maybe it's at your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your family. I don't know where it is, but maybe the step for you is that you would put your arm around them and in your own soul know I'm serving as a Barnabas because that's what God did for us through Christ. And just think, as all of us go, and we all do that in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence, and while at the same time those of us who are on the staff are doing that with young guys like Josh who are coming along and who are launching out to start churches, more and more in the years ahead, Faithbridge will become a church that could be known as a Barnabas kind of church, which I believe would be well-pleasing to God. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> thank you for this, this obscure figure, Barnabas, who many of us didn't even really have quite an idea of who he was when we started a little while ago. But what a significant person he was and how you used him in at least these two characters, Mark's and Paul's lives, and surely others as well. And Lord, my prayer is that you would just plant a seed inside each of us now and nudge us towards the person that you would have us to put an arm around to serve as a sponsor or liaison or bridge for to help them take their next step, which is not to say that we would become enablers of people who've made poor choices or are in um, sort of rut behaviors, but rather that when a person has messed it up or has fallen or is new in a community, that they are finally going to need a Barnabas to come in. Lord, won't you show us who it is that you want to live through us as a Barnabas? Give us the grace to do that. And if you're here today and you've never even said yes to Jesus in the first place, then that's really where you would need to start today. And even as I'm praying aloud, you just pray silently, Jesus, I am asking you to be my Savior because I want what you came into this world to do. I want it to count for my life too. I want what you did on the cross to apply for my sins, that I could be forgiven and given new life and hope and purpose. And so even now, why don't you in the quietness of this moment, you just do that personal business with him directly. Thanks for this time, Lord. We pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. And welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Pastor Ken, who just talked about Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Welcome, Pastor Ken. Thanks. Glad to have you here today. Well, I love this message, loved hearing from Josh from HCPN, mm -hmm. and then taking a look at Barnabas. Mm -hmm. um, and so we didn't actually have any questions um, come in, but I do want you to talk about something. Yeah. I do know that people who work with you and maybe know a little bit more that there is 
more to just a connection with you and Barnabas, Barnabas. And, and things. Yeah. Can you talk more about sure. that? Sure, right. Well, right. You know, along the way in, in, in my own journey, I think substantially because of the mentoring that I got that I did talk about in the message, um, I began early on, earlier than most pastors, trying to figure out, um, well, how could I do for some other guys the same thing that was done for me and, and to kind of begin to move them uh, to the front and coach them and, and, and mentor them and these sorts of things. About the same time, a friend of mine was talking about how it was that John Wesley, who's one of my personal heroes back from the 1700s, how in the building over in London called Wesley's Chapel, there's, uh, there was a wraparound balcony, and it is said that Wesley would uh, sort of position himself at different stations in that balcony when he would watch his young preachers preach. And that way he could see what the responses of the congregation were and, and what was working and, and what wasn't working to kind of coach them to be more effective. And even when I heard that story, I just felt like God said to me, that's my balcony vision for you. And so even way back before we ever had a literal balcony in one of our center courts, I began talking about my balcony vision where I would move progressively to the balcony and work through younger people and coach them and mentor them and, and watch them uh, you know, blossom and launch out and all those sorts of things. And so, you know, the biblical theological foundation for that, I guess my, my, my scriptural character is Barnabas. Mm -hmm. Uh, for for doing that, and so when I talk about him, it 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 resonates in a personal sort of way, not just a uh, another character in scripture. Let's talk about, but one that I have always just felt a a, a special connection to. Now, is that what led you to be interested in partnering and joining HCPN? How sure. how did we yeah. how did that come about? Yeah. So several years ago. I was feeling that restless feeling that you feel sometimes if you're a leader, that we've got to start some churches. And the only two ways that we had done it in the past was sort of taking a person and trying to equip them quickly and, and launching them that I wouldn't say was the, the, the best way to do it or to give money to our denomination. And the problem with that is many times um, when you're part of a larger organization, it's harder to see. Now, what good did that do? Where, wh wh let me cut through all that to figure out where did that go and who did that get to and how was that used and, and, and did it work? You know, and, and so I was feeling this inner sense of restlessness that I wanna start some churches but how can I do that? So I had decided we're gonna start a church planting school. Mm -hmm. And I was getting ready to fly up to New York and, and learn from Tim Keller and, and here's how you have a church planting school and we're gonna do the whole deal and I'd already told our inner circle and it's gonna cost a lot of money and blah, blah. Well, about the same time, uh, a guy from HCPN who was actually on the video uh, called me up and said, I'd like to have lunch with you. So we had lunch. and. And while we were talking, I was telling him kind of what I was wanting to do. And he listened patiently and, and smiled. And he said, well, Ken, I've got good news for you because we already have set up exactly what you want to do. And, but we're looking for anchor churches who are larger, who have some resources, resources, financial resources, experience that you can bring in to, to really make this a meaningful partnership. Um, and why don't you pray about that? And I said, wow, I don't even know if I need to pray about it. I, I think that just might be God's answer because it's already there. And so it was there that our relationship began. We talked about it and our lay elders talked about it and our lead team and everything. And, and 
and our business admin and I and our bridging budget. I said, okay, now this we're going to step in with a big commitment, and um, but this is the right thing to do, and I feel so good about it. So last year we launched six uh, new churches. This year uh, seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all in Greater Houston, uh, which is nothing against launching churches in other cities. I'm all for that as well. But you finally just have to sort of hang your target right. on the wall and say, well, this is what we're going to go after. And so we're uh, an anchor church in the Houston Church Planting Network with the goal of reaching every man, woman, boy, and girl with the gospel through a uh, partnering together of like-hearted, gospel-centered churches committed to saturation church planting in Greater Houston. And that's the strategy, and we're sticking to it, and so far, so good. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and really it, Yeah, so as part of our giving here at Faithbridge, a big part is seeing the going out, going out. Yeah. Um, and, to guys like Josh. So, guys like Josh mm-hmm. in so many ways, in yeah. so many places. So that's exactly. really cool. It's very exciting. Um, yeah, so thanks for your message today and for sharing that with us. And thanks for being a Barnabas for many of us here on staff. And wow. thank you. And thank you for joining us here on Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.